Hello and welcome, everybody. I'm your host, Rachel, and this is All for Animals. Today, we've got a very inspiring story of becoming a veterinarian a little bit later than some people might. And it's all because of a dog named Blue. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Chris Hack, DVM, onto the show to tell us all about her inspiring story. So thank you for coming on the show, Dr. Kristen Hack. I'm so excited to have you on. And that's Dr. with a, it's a DVM at the end, correct? Yes. Yeah. Dr. Okay. Medicine. Yep. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show. And can you, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so I am, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I practice in a walk-in small animal general practice, and in I work part-time in an ER. I'm not from here. I'm a transplant from Niagara Falls, uh, but uh, I decided to leave my career several years ago and become a veterinarian. I have backgrounds in music, banking, and insurance, so this is wow. kind of a different, um, that's a, quite a segue from those things, but uh I uh, decided to, I was around 30 years old, decided to go ahead and go to vet school. And uh, here I am now, uh, 10 years later, and I've been practicing for almost five years. I'm not sure what else you want me to tell about myself. So I oh, that's ask some questions. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite the introduction already. It's so very inspiring. <laughs> so would you like to kind of tell a little bit? I know there's quite the story behind what made you change careers in your 30s. Uh, do you want to tell us about that a little bit? Sure. So um, I guess uh, I was 28, 29. Uh, really, I was going through my divorce. and that was a really devastating thing for me. But uh, while I, I was the one that moved out, and so uh, everything about my life changed, like my commute to work, where I grocery shopped, you know, where I stopped for gas, and everything changed. And so, and that where I lived, of course. And so I was like, you know, well, while I'm changing absolutely everything about my life and seemingly starting at square one again. I was like, well, I don't really love what I do for a living. So maybe I'll change that too. And I went on this year, 2012, of um, kind of soul searching of what I wanted to do. And I made lists of things I was good at, things I am not good at, and things I wanted from a career, this or that. And then uh, one day in December of 2012, uh, my dog, Blue, got... Um, what's called an oral hematoma. So the ear flap, um, that henna, and it fills up with blood because they are shaking it usually. And it's often secondary to an ear infection, not always, but most of the time. And um, so I had to take my vet in, I, or my dog into the vet. And I had to Google, like, where can I take my dog into the vet, walk in. And fun story where I work now actually is the clinic where I brought Blue. Uh, so Blue was my beloved Black Labrador that I got from my friends, James and Donna. He was probably close to a year old when I met him because I always knew him from going to their house. But then due to life circumstances, they had to uh, rehome him. So I remember uh, trying to convince my ex-husband for us to get him because we didn't have a dog. And my uh, ex-husband was a police officer, so he felt we needed a watchdog. So a Black Lab that when her soul wasn't really on his list of dogs to get. And I remember making it his idea of, oh yeah, well, yeah, we have to take him in. No one's going to, maybe no one will adopt him. So he was two years old when I got him. Um, and so he was, um, goodness, I don't know, six, five or six, seven, something like that when I, when, when all this happened, but I brought him into the vet and uh, into 15th street veterinary group. That's that general practice where I work. And, uh, you know, they had to take him to the back to clean his ears and all that. And while I was sitting in that exam room, I was like, man, this, this checks off all the things on my list. Like I wanted to be challenged. I wanted a job where I was on my feet uh, and not sitting in front of a computer. I was in sales for insurance at the time. So I rarely left the desk and was on my phone all the time, you know, on the phone making calls. And sure. uh, so I just was like, and it, um, I love animals. And so I was like, ah, why not? So I went home and did a Google search of 
hey, what do what do vet techs make? And then I saw what they make. It was a <laughs> cut, and not that I made a ton of money, but I had a mortgage I had to pay. And then I started looking at veterinarian, and then the the job description was was different and more along the lines of what I would think I would want to do. So I didn't want to just jump in and make a rash decision. So I was like, well, I'll sign up for a couple of classes. So I already had a, a, a bachelor's degree, but my bachelor's was in music. So uh, as you can imagine, not a ton of science and math classes, plus it's been sure. over a decade or almost a decade since I graduated, yeah, over a decade since I graduated college. I, I can't do math anymore. It's been too many years. Anyway, it's been a while since I graduated with my undergrad. So I signed up for a chemistry class to make sure I was smart enough. And then a zoology class, because I was like, well, cool. It's about animals. And then I called my clinic now that I work at. I called them almost every day for a month trying to get a kennel, uh, a kennel, you know, tech job just to oh, okay. see what the business is like, see if this is what I really want to do. Cause I felt like, okay, if these classes are awful, if I can't make it in these, or if, uh, or if I start working at this clinic and I realize this is not what I want to do, I don't have a ton invested time-wise or financially, but, um, I started classes in January of that, of 2013. And then, uh, February, they, they finally realized I'm really annoying and they hired me on the 15th <laughs> street. And they hired me on his kennel. And my first day in the clinic on a Saturday, I remember the day very clearly. And I knew, okay, yeah, this is where I need to be. So Blue was the reason I really came to love animals. And he was also the reason I had to go to the vet that day. And uh, he was my support through that year that was so challenging when my entire life was being redirected. And so really, he changed my entire life and the direction of it. And I still get emotional talking about it because, you know, people say, oh, they're just a dog. But he was more than just a dog. He changed my whole life. And it's all because of him that I did all this. And so, yeah, here we go. Fast forward, uh, I guess now, you know, close to 11 years later. Uh, and here I am. So, wow, that is quite the amazing story. And I'm so sorry to get you all choked up. Oh, no, I, I know this is why I wear waterproof makeup to work because <laughs> like, I'm one, a sympathy crier. So, like, euthanasias are sad news. And someone's, you know, I'm like that. And then I just, I'm one of those people I tear up if I'm happy, sad, mad, you know. So, this <laughs> far for the course. <laughs> Honestly, same. I have the same issues. Um, <laughs> Thankfully, I don't have nearly as high pressure of a job as you do, <laughs> but uh, I've definitely cried through a few grooms as well. Oh, Logan, yeah. go That's ahead. going to be traumatic too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so I absolutely, I love hearing like the, the origin story of how everybody came to where they are now. And yours especially is just so, I feel like unique because it's such it's such a daunting task to go to vet school, even when you're in that like prime college age. So I didn't feel me. like I was at the prime college age. <laughs> that's what I mean is after yeah. your, after your twenties and everything, that's kind yeah. of when people are like, eh, I'm too old for that now or right. something. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the maybe more unique challenges that you faced going back to school? So sure. uh, later on and everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I will kind of back up to one of your comments of uh, at that age, like where we feel like we are on this timeline that society tells us you graduate from high school, you go to college, then you get married, you have kids. And these are the things you do at all these ages. Well, I was when I was debating this and looking at what it was going to take to become a veterinarian, which I can get into that. But uh, I was telling one of my friends, I was like, man, I'm going to be like, 35 when I graduate and you know that seems like so far away and she was like you're going to be 35 eventually anyway and you're either going to be a vet or you're not going to be a vet and so that kind of puts it in a perspective of yes you have to put in that time but uh you're either going you're going to get older right we're all going to keep getting older and what do you want to do in five ten years and look back on the decisions you made and and were you pleased with those and two if you're 35 when you graduate, which by the way, I have friends that were 43 and 44 when they finished, one was 49. I've seen a lot of that, but uh, really if, if I work till I'm 65, which let's be honest, I'm going to have to work a lot longer than that, but <laughs> that's still 30 years in the workforce and 30 years is a long time to do something you don't enjoy or 
or get value from. So that was what made it kind of a, eh. and I've never, really never been the type to shy away from a challenge. Um, I, in all my past careers, I only lasted up to four or five years because I always got bored, you know? So uh, I guess I wanted something that was going to be tough. Now, if I would have known how hard vet school was, I'm kind of glad I didn't know how hard it was going <laughs> to be because I don't know if I would have been as gung ho as, as I, as I was. Um, but the, the challenges that came with that were one from a financial aspect, right? So when you're going to college, um, well, some people have financial help from their parents. I didn't, but I didn't, I wasn't encumbered by a mortgage payment or expensive things, right? Like I could, um, you know, I got scholarships and, and grants and student loans and I, you know, uh, was really broke all the time. But <laughs> what, what was different about going back later was, and I did have a mortgage payment and I had other responsibilities financially. And suddenly here I am choosing a path where I can't work. Well, I did end up working, but you're not supposed to work. Uh, yeah. But again, I, I just um, have no idea what work-life balance is. And I like to overload my kids <laughs> Um, but, uh, that was, that was really difficult. And, you know, I can talk a lot about the different academic challenges and other things that came up, but that I think was probably mentally my, one of the biggest things was I had an 800 plus credit score. I made decent money. The only debt I had was the rest of my student loans and my, and then my house payment. And then I'm like, how can I ruin all that? And I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to go to vet school. <laughs> So I think that was the hardest thing and the stress of, I was able to rent out my house uh, to a friend. And so that made things more forgiving. Like if things went wrong at the house, the things need to be repaired. But really, truly, it was just so stressful of wondering, oh my God, is my, if my car goes out, how am I going to afford repairs, you know, or uh, if my, um, something goes wrong at the house, which a few things did, thankfully nothing terrible. But I think that financial burden that just the difference of being 30 something versus being 18, 20, you know, whatever. Um, that was one of the biggest challenges for me mentally and, uh, and emotionally and just my own ties to my, my, um, upbringing and what, who I did or didn't want to be as far as echoing the decisions of my parents, you sure. know, financial decisions. And so that was really taxing. That was a really long explanation, bitching about having a mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I, I think it's a wonderful perspective because you're right. When you're first getting started out at like 18 to 20 years old, you're kind of expecting to not really have your feet under you. But right. if you come at it from a perspective where you've had your feet under you for a while, and then all of a sudden it's almost like the rug got ripped out from underneath you. That is very jarring. Yeah. And it is. I like what you said about like, almost like the conveyor belt of this or, or checklist even of this is how your life is supposed to go. And then you were just kind of like, but why though? And threw it out the window. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. And it's, it, life isn't linear. I feel like they, it's spelled out for us in a linear way of this is what you do, like just this horizontal timeline of, and this is what you do at these certain checkpoints. And I, if I could just convey that to anyone, I take the opportunity every time I can. Of like, You're not confined to what everyone says it's supposed to look like. You can take the scenic route. And it's a lot more interesting. And quite honestly, who the hell knows what they actually want to do with the rest of their life when they're 18? I mean, right. I remember seeing a statistic that I read years ago that I think it was only 15% of people stay in the career that they choose when they graduate high school and go to college. And now that's very outdated. I read that years and years ago. Sure. But the take home message is who really knows with how they want to spend their <laughs> life? And you don't, you're not, your brain's not even fully developed till you're 24 or so. Or if you're a man, yeah. maybe till you're 54. But, you know, I don't know. So, uh, <laughs> 54, that seems early. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So I, yeah, I just think, I think, you know, everyone's lives are individual and I think it's really, it's really a shame that we make people think they cannot follow their dreams because you didn't have that dream at the right time. So. Absolutely. I mean, when I was in high school, I was preparing to take, uh, I, I was, I was actually taking culinary classes and trying to go into one of the very like prestigious culinary schools. I was like doing, uh, competitions to try and earn a scholarship. And since I, 
I narrowly lost out on my scholarship, mm-hmm. I kind of just floundered for a minute and I was wondering, okay, what do I do now? And then I just kind of fell face first into grooming because of also because of the dog that I love. So it's, I like those stories where it kind of takes you by surprise. (laughs) I know. I think that some of the best moments of my life and the best seasons of my life have been the ones that I didn't plan. It just kind of popped up out of nowhere. And at first, sometimes you don't even realize how, how incredible it is until you're in the thick of it, or even sometimes, unfortunately, in the aftermath of it and reflection. I think, I think yeah. those are the coolest things of the stuff that ha- is by happenstance, you know? Yes. <laughs> so I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> yeah. Especially myself. I always thought, you know, I had this upbringing that was a bit tumultuous or what have you. And so I always thought if I plan everything, if I think of every possibility, if I then then I have control and the bottom can't ever fall out from under me. And that's just not how it works. So yeah. sometimes, sometimes the unexpected ends up being the coolest thing ever. So absolutely. Yeah. I mean, seeing it after my divorce, I was, I felt like a brand new person as well. And I feel like that's a really universal storyline yeah. where it's just like, you're shedding your old life. You become a brand new version of you and all of these new possibilities that you hadn't ever considered before just start opening themselves up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, really, I think the scary thing is the, the, the slate is blank, like you're mm-hmm. asking one, but really you could flip that around and say, that's really cool. Like I, yeah. I have a blank slate and I can fill it up with whatever I want to fill it up with. And all about so, perspective. It is. It really is. Right. Like most things. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so did you have certain, uh, certain like courses that you like really, really struggled with, or did you love every aspect of your education? Oh no, 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 no. no. <laughs> No, I did not love every aspect of my education. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, first I, um, so I had my bachelor's degree, right? So I had to do, um, I did two and a half years of prerequisites um, when I decided to pursue this just to be able to apply for vet Okay. Um, and so in that you're taking all the, you know, of course I loved microbiology and I loved, um, uh, biochemistry, I really, really loved. But then you're taking stuff like organic chem, and and you're like, man, do I j- just walk into oncoming traffic to end this all now? <laughs> or, uh, you know, because it's just so so tedious. And you know, all my all my friends that are in those classes, you know, I made friends with those people. Ever everyone liked the lady that was older than them. You know, it was just they could have made you know this weird weird old lady that would say whatever the hell she wanted in classes with them. So we were all friends, but they, they were all, you know, um, uh, some type of engineering majors and stuff. So, you know, they're zipping through all this organic chem and I'm like, can I curse on here? I don't know. If I yeah. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> I was like, what, what the fuck is this? You know, I'm like, I, if you could put me in a room and tell me you have to solve this complicated equation or we're going to kill you. And I'm just going to put a bullet in my head. I'm done with this. I don't want to do this. Some of those classes, I hated it. I had to take physics one and two. Uh, and then like, especially physics two and like magnetism and all that stuff. I'm like, okay, conceptually, that sounds really cool. But me having to prove this on paper with mathematical equations, this is a definition of misery. Why would yeah. anyone do this for a living? Makes you really thankful for the people that do. And I have never really had to study hard in my life. And so then I start vet school and they use the illustration of drinking from a fire hose. And it's true that I don't think that anything in vet in vet school or med school or anything like that is necessarily hard, you know, but it is just the sheer volume. I feel like I'm just rambling now, but yeah. Oh, I no. just, like maybe that's stuff I need to talk to my therapist about if I'm still <laughs> feeling like <laughs> I felt you my have- heart rate increase. I'm like, oh, wow. I think that school still five years later is still <laughs> You have med school trauma. Yeah, I know. It really is kind of a traumatic experience. When I, think. I believe it wholeheartedly. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't imagine going through that much schooling. I, I was going to school for like a, a business degree and um, trying to work my way kind of backwards into doing the um, business side of like owning a small bakery or something like that. Mm-hmm. I hated it. I hated being in college. I could not stand yeah. it. 
And then I had a bunch of health issues that made me wind up dropping out and everything. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad I didn't have to have that education in order to do my current job. I seriously have just heaps and heaps of of respect for anybody that's able to trudge through that much school. Cause it's like, what is it like six or eight years of, yeah. So the normal, if you're not following my random scenic route, but uh, (laughs) normally you'd have a four-year bachelor degree and then, um, vet school is four years. So you have to do that one year of internship before you can even think about a residency. And then if you're lucky, you get accepted into the residency of your choice. But other things, like if you want to be a a veterinary surgeon, you then have to do a a, um, small animal surgery internship. So that's another year. And then you go, then, then residency is three years. But if you don't make it into a residency, you have to do another year at an internship trying to get into a residency. So some of are really in school for a very, very long time. Um, but I, I went straight in, I went into general practice. So, okay. Yeah. So, so I, now, have, I have almost 11 years of school, but, but I could have done what I do in eight. Okay. All yeah. right. Well, that's very cool though. Yeah. And again, just kind of a more scenic, right? <laughs> route. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so you work in a general practice, mm-hmm. correct? And then you also do ER, which correct. one do you prefer? So quite honestly, I like ER more. Uh, but I love, I love, love, love the clinic I work at and the people I work with. And I, and we're not a a typical general practice since we are walk-in only. I mean, we schedule elective surgeries like, you know, spays and neuters, those aren't walk-in, but we are purely walk-in. So what that means is that other vets in the, in, in town, um, if they can't get their patients in, you know, like, oh, sorry, we can't get you in. We're fully booked. See you in two weeks. They come to us. So that means we see a lot of other vets, sick patients. Mm -hmm. And so not that I want animals to be sick, but that is the interesting part of my job. Like the wellness ones are fun. Pets and puppies or kittens once in a while, which everyone thinks that's what being a vet is. Your puppies (laughs) are about 5% of your job. Um, But I really like the challenge of how we get emergent things all the time. Like yesterday I did a foreign body surgery on a bulldog. He ate a stress ball. <laughs> oh like, my. Supposed to use those. Um, <laughs> but uh, so did abdominal surgery on because the, her vet couldn't get him in. And so came to us and, you know, so we, so it's, I, so that's the only way that I can survive a general practice is if I have a lot of other things going on. Um, there are vets out there that really enjoy the whole wellness piece and just maintaining and, the, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, we all know like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So wellness medicine is very important, but I like the complex cases and solving them. And I like surgery. Um, so ER is a better fit for how, uh, for practicing medicine, but I love my clinic so much that I will not leave them and go ER full time. So, so I go get I my love that. time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You get a little sprinkling of what you need and then you, you get to also build those relationships with the, the more regular clients and patients as well. That's exactly. awesome. Yeah, exactly. I love that. So I think I remember you saying at one point that wasn't blue, the first surgery uh, or first dog that you ever performed a surgery on. He was my first major surgery ever. Oh, okay. And so um, by then I was in, so I was in my second year. And um, uh, so I maybe, you know, watched a couple surgeries at that point, but the first major surgery I'd ever seen was his. And so they let me scrub in to remove his spleen. So I didn't, you know, suture anything up. I think that Dr. Green let me put the staples in the skin when we were finished or something. <laughs> when, you know, you're like nervous putting staples in. And now by the time I get to staples, I'm like, burp, 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 you know, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, that was, it was just really cool. And it was really crazy to, you know, in human world, I doubt there's any chance you would ever be working on a family member or anyone remotely, whatever, but you, it, it is not frowned upon in our world. You can even okay. do surgery. I've either done surgery or been scrubbed in on any, every surgery my animals have had done. Um, but that was the first one and it was, um, it was pretty crazy. And then that means too, you're there for the whole recovery and everything, you know? So it was, and it was Valentine's day of, of that year. Of oh, okay. Yeah. So that's how wow. it's Valentine's day. His <laughs> abdomen. <laughs> So is it, I've never experienced like viewing an animal's surgery, except for like seeing videos and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I have to feel like it's, it's gotta be a pretty overwhelming 
feeling to be like looking into your beloved pet's body. It, was it, was it startling? Was it difficult for you? It wasn't. I know. No, I've had that question a lot. And, and I even know, I know a lot of vets who cannot and will not do surgery on their own pets. Um, I, I'm the opposite of where I don't want to hand it off to someone else, unless it's a surgery I'm not equipped for, of course. Sure. But, um, uh, no, it wasn't. And then also remember too, that there's, there are drapes everywhere. So, you know, it turns into a surgical field in front of you. And, and so I don't know, I just, even from that first surgery, I was just able to flip the switch of, you know, where in surgery, of course, I was still aware this is blue, this is, you know, things could go wrong, what am I going to, you know, but I've, in situations like that, I've always been able to, to flip that switch of disconnecting and um, task at hand kind of, yeah. you know, that's fantastic. Yeah, I felt the significance of it. I remember at one point holding his big old spleen that had just this horrible giant tumor on it, holding it because those are those are such a bitch to get out sometimes because you're you're to ligate like tie off all these vessels and mm-hmm. so having a helper actually is really nice to be able to hold things and maneuver things. So I was that helper, but I remember having a moment of like, wow, this is this is crazy. This is how I'm spending my Valentine's Day. Like, <laughs> You know, and it was sad because I, I knew it was probably going to be cancerous. So it was, you know, bittersweet, but it was like, but I, because of my path, I get to be here with him, Even, yeah. you know, so yeah, I got to be there with him. I must be like a little bit worn out from working because I'm a little <laughs> more emotional than normal. I really, even though I'm a tear upper, I just felt myself tearing up again. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? <laughs> I mean, I can't say I blame you. We're talking about this major surgery on the, the dog that essentially launched your entire career. So yeah. I can't say I blame you. That <laughs> yeah. Quite the overwhelming experience. And I mean, I cry all the time thinking about dogs I've lost over a decade ago. So yeah. I'm with you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got it. And now you have, you've, you've kind of made it your mission to adopt the, what I like to lovingly refer to as the misfits, the senior dogs, the ones that most people kind of tend to overlook. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, and that, I don't think that happened intentionally. Uh, it, it, you know, Blue was around two and I got him and and then while I was still married, I, I was driving along and uh, missed my light because I was listening to some Kelly Clarkson song because I loved it <laughs> and, and uh, ended up encountering this dog that was running, you know, on the, the, you know, the opposite side of the road. And I ended up just pulling him over and he went down in my car. We ended up keeping him, couldn't find his owner. He, and he was a, an old, old golden retriever renamed Harold. Uh, he looked like he should be sitting in a rocking chair with spectacles on reading, you know, children's <laughs> stories to a group of children or something. But um, so then uh, Blue, unfortunately, his his cancer was uh, metastatic cancer. It's a very common one in dogs, actually. I see these all the time. But um, he uh, he ended up um, getting chemo, which was an amazing gift from my friends. And that's a long story or not a long story, but it's a really nice story. But um, he, he died that October. And, um, and so I was like, oh man, I've got, I'm, go- I'm in my third year now. I don't have time. I've got my, you know, 20 credit hours of classes and I'm in junior surgery. You know, you're just, just, you know, you're just insanely booked up. So I was like, I'm not going to get another dog. So I, I had gotten my cat, a cat, I already had a cat. <laughs> And I got him a cat uh, and I named her Hope because I needed some hope in my life. But then after Blue died, 29 days later, I got another dog. Uh, my ex-husband, we were divorced by then, uh, but he had, was fostering this old lab and he kept trying to say like, maybe you should get her, you know, da, da, da. I was like, no. Then he's like, ah, well, will you at least watch her while I'm out of town for a couple of days? And I was like, yeah, sure. Uh, he knew how to play me because sure enough, like, <laughs> I... Uh, drove to Tulsa to get her because I was living in Stillwater and then I was back in Stillwater and he messaged me about something and I was like oh yeah I'm not giving her back and he's like, <laughs> I figured that was how it's gonna play out so her name was Lacey she was eight when I got her and I had her for three years uh, she was wonderful big old 90 pound lab with a big old head just didn't care what anyone else thought she should be doing she did what she wanted very cool dog uh, and then I got sister, who's my golden that I still have, and she was seven and a half when I got her. She's twelve now. Never had. Oh a wow! 
12. Yeah. I, uh, so I, she's looking at me right now. She heard her name. And Is then, that sister that we've heard talking to you a couple times? Oh, no, that's Dublin. Oh, and okay. so Dublin is named Dublin because she was a dog that was abandoned at my clinic back in September. And she was abandoned. It was, of course, my last shift before I was leaving for Europe the next day. And it was oh, in the wow. last hour. So I've, I've worked with a lot of rescues to get animals rehomed. Um, and I knew that the rescues were tapped and I wasn't sure what I was going to do about her. But um, I asked my boss, since I've gotten some animals in the clinic sent elsewhere and help them out. I was like, hey, if you can just let her stay here for two weeks while I'm gone, I will figure this out when I get back. And so, he, you know, they, my boss is very generous. And so she stayed there. And so I guess, you know, the next day I'm on a plane and my nurses were like, well, what are we going to, we're going to name this abandoned uh, stray. So she's like, I don't know, maybe 13 or 14. And she's, she looks Labradorish, but has a shorter face and ears. I think she's part Sharpay. She's bow-legged. And at the time she has had horrible ear infections, missing hair all over her body, just looking like a hot mess. And uh, they were like, well, where's Dr. Hack flying to today? And and they were like, oh, she's flying to Dublin. And they're like, let's name her Dublin. So (laughs) that's how she got her name. So she is talkative. And that was her that you heard. (laughs) And she's, her hair has grown back. Her ear infections are treated. She's on meds for arthritis. She loves food. She is doing well. So I've got She's living the high life. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've, I've had some of these kiddos for a long time. And then I've had a few older ones that I've only had for a few months, more like hospice. And so it's just happened by accident. But, you know, a lot of people don't want an older dog. Uh, and they um, certainly don't want the, that you know, when you get an older dog, you're not going to have them for an extremely long period of time, but you're going to get attached. And so there's the, the pain aspect and people that don't want to... Um, uh, have to train an older, they would rather have a younger dog. They can train in, you know, yeah. properly. Uh, but I, I have found it to be really rewarding and I've never had a puppy. I don't know that I ever will. That looks really yeah. hard. A lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll take the senior ones any day, but I think I need to get a somewhat younger one next time because I have had a lot of death over the last few years. And I think I need to have someone that'll stick around for a bit. It's <laughs> a lot. I'm not immune to that, to that, um, you know, I feel like when you lose a pet, I feel like it would be, almost be compounded for you guys because it's never just your personal pets, which is so devastating all on its own. But mm-hmm. then you have to go into the office the next day and help end the suffering of another person's beloved pet. And so it just kind of, I feel like snowballs. It, it makes true. it worse. It's a little harder. Yeah. And, and euthanasia is not the worst part of my job. And I say that sentence because all the time people are like, oh, that must be the worst part of your job. And it's actually not, but, um, but it is, um, it is worse when you have your own pet at home, that's either sick or has passed away. And then you're, you have to set aside your own pain yeah. to walk someone else through theirs and so sometimes sometimes this job can be challenging like that emotionally and mentally uh, compassion fatigue is um, spoken about often yeah. and we're also one well I think we are the only profession that we uh, that we euthanize our patients you know yeah. which I actually think that there there is a gift in that we don't have to see them suffer I cannot imagine what it's like to be um, in human medicine in a lot of the terminal type cases or like hospice or oncology, all of that, that, you know, your patient is going to die and you cannot end their suffering. We at least yeah. get to end suffering. So, so while it is painful, it's also uh, euthanasia is a gift in that sense of that, that we don't, we, we can give them a peaceful ending, you know? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious then what is your, least or the the worst part of of your your day-to-day job then if you are comfortable with talking about that I am I am worst part or 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 most challenging thing is um when you know you have a patient you can fix but money is Um, not there and you have to euthanize that patient um and now that doesn't mean that every animal that cannot get the gold standard of care gets euthanized but when there are conditions that Yes, they are life-threatening, but we could fix this, but the, the owners don't have the funds to do it. That is um, devastating. And I don't mean that in a shaming way of 
we can't oh, sure. owners myself, like you can't make money up here. Like I get, cause they feel, they feel guilty about having to do this, you know? Uh, but I think that that is so frustrating as someone that wants to heal and someone that wants to fix. Um, and then for, for something so trivial, I put that in quotations, like, cause sure. obviously it's not trivial, but for something just like money that, yeah. that we can't do it, that that is really hard. And then the other thing is when there are pets that are horribly suffering in awful, awful dire straits and, and the owner won't, that is a, and you know that they're suffering, you know, and you cannot get it across to them how poorly this animal is doing because something that I tell owners all the time, you know, our clients is, uh, suffering is part of the human experience. We can't avoid it. We, Mm -hmm. we are going to suffer uh, in, in a variety of ways and of varying degrees, but we suffering is part of it, but suffering doesn't have to be part of the animal experience, you know? Uh, and so I think that euthanasia in itself is not painful. Uh, of course, I, like I told you, I wear waterproof mascara because I tear <laughs> up. I'm a sympathy prior. I feel pain for the owners, but this is a dog that's just lived a long, long, long life. And then now we can escort them peacefully. That, that is kind. But whenever you're bearing that, um, that burden of this animal is suffering and I cannot, I have no control over trying to ease this suffering, that is deeply that is deeply upsetting um owners that won't owners that can't and again i'm not shaming it people have oh, to sure. come to a different um everyone is at a different um level of how they can reconcile themselves with death of their family members including their pets and so it's not a shameful thing but when i know that that animal is suffering i think that that is one of the darkest things or when i know that i can fix it but but something like money is keeping me from being able to do it those sure. are and i don't know if those are the worst part of my job and you probably the answer might change on the day based on <laughs> sure. day I had or what i encountered but that certainly it those are certainly some of the um, more heartbreaking things that you see. Yeah, I I can totally understand that. And the, the dogs that people are so hesitant to let go of, I see that all the time, even just as a groomer, I'm a mobile groomer. So the vast majority of my clients are the elderly and or special needs dogs that can't handle being in a normal salon environment. So I, I mean, I can think of like three or four of them right off the top of my head where I was constantly like, I don't even know if I should be trying anything with this dog. I feel like this is mean at this point. This is cruel. It's, it's unnecessary. And it's a really difficult, it's a really difficult topic to broach with people because it is so unbelievably personal Mm -hmm. and so painful Mm -hmm. for people. Yeah. Don't envy you having to try and have that conversation. <laughs> yeah. But I, but also on the flip side, at least if it's coming from me, I'm the doctor. And so they yeah. kind of expect to have those conversations with me. So I could see how it'd be really challenging as a groomer that, and, and you said just a groomer, by the way, I don't want you to minimize that because I've had some very upsetting <laughs> neglect cases that those, um, the coat is so neglected uh, that it ends up causing medical problems. So really yeah. don't, don't, you know, undermine yourself in that, but I could see how that'd be even more challenging of like, Oh, I'm not your dog's vet, but by the way, this patient is suffering, you know, some people yeah. might not be as receptive from certain roles because Lord knows we have the people aren't receptive to me, but you know, yeah. still, so I could see how that would be really challenging and heartbreaking too. I've seen a few, I have a few cases sticking out in my mind of, they, you know, it's a, it's, I guess it's a symptom of a lot of neglect when they come in that their hair coat is so neglected that they have sores and scarring on their skin and things like that. You know, I see it a lot. It's really sad. I've even had to like, um, I've had to tell people like, basically don't pass, go, don't collect $200, go immediately to an ER, stuff like that. It's, mm-hmm. it's a lot to, to take. And I appreciate you not minimizing yeah. <laughs> the groomer role because yeah. uh-huh. all, I, I mean, all I can really do is tell people this needs immediate veterinary attention and then hope that they go hope and pursue go. it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's, it's, it's very, it's a different side of it for sure. But anytime you're dealing with animals, unfortunately, there's always a human at the other end of the leash somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> It makes it really difficult for sure. 
Yeah, you bring up a good point. A lot of I'll have people be like, "Oh, I'm going into animal medicine because I don't like people," and I'm like, "Yes, flash." Very, very peopley business because yep. every animal has a human that is going to be telling you all about what's been happening and they're going to be the ones with the wallet to pay the bill and they're going to be the ones you're talking to to get permission from for diagnostics or treatments. It is very much a people business. And you're right. Every animal comes with a human. Yes. Well, yeah. and like, it's not even just when they're there in front of you as a vet, as a groomer, as any animal professional, it's also, you have to just kind of sit back and hope that they'll do the maintenance at home, whether it's administering medication that needs to be done, switching to a better diet, do, doing something as simple as running a brush through your dog's hair every now and then stuff like that. Owner it's compliance. Only, yeah. yeah. Owner compliance. You're only limited by how compliant your owner is like that. You are truly limited by that. Yeah. So, it's yeah. a lot. And it's a lot of pressure for the animal professional to take on, especially one, which I'm kind of getting that you might like to be in control, just like I do <laughs> So, <laughs> for somebody that likes to be able to kind of control the situation. It's especially infuriating when you can't be the one to make sure all of those little things are kind of lined up the way they need to be. Right. Yeah. I know that's a, that's a constant challenge of, you know, and I don't consider myself a true control freak, but maybe I am in the sense that, but I have, I have a big mistrust of, is this person going to get this done? And honestly, I try to be very practical in things like knowing that most people are not going to, after their vet visit, suddenly start brushing their dog's teeth every day, cleaning their ears twice a week, putting this mousse on the fur and doing all this stuff and the change. They're not going to go do all that. Right. So I, as far as animal compliance or owner compliance goes, I remember what my dentist, cause my dentist and I kind of chat back and forth about our jobs. And I remember her telling me, she's like, yeah, if I have an owner or an owner, <laughs> if I have a patient <laughs> come in that, um, you know, they're not even brushing their teeth every day. How am I going to start telling them, oh, now you need to floss every day and do this or that. She's like, I take, where are they at here? And what can we do to get them to start doing this one thing consistently? Then when they're, then when they're brushing their teeth twice a day consistently, then we'll start talking about all the other things we can do. So I am practical in that and knowing I too, am not going to do a bunch of extensive things that are stupid. Like I'll do anything if it, if it means it's, significant. I don't like jumping through hoops, yada, yada. Right. So if I'm like this vet, you know, pretending I'm a lay person or whatever, this vet told me, Oh, I got to put this moose on the fur and I got to do this. I got to do all these topicals. I got to do this. I've got to, I don't know. I don't know that I would do all that. Right. So like sure. and choosing and try to be very practical so that I set the, the, the patient's owner up for success to care for them properly while not asking so much of them. And also I'm like, sure, you could give these eye drops six times a day if you didn't have a job or a life <laughs> or anything else to do, you know? So uh, there's always a give and take. So I always know, but yeah, the control freak part of it is just my distrust of, will that, will they do this? Please do this. But I've had yeah. to, to like a rule that I gave myself is you can't have more skin in the game than the client. Now, do I stick with that in my brain all the time? No, it becomes, <laughs> but I, to protect my own mental and emotional well being, I had to say, okay, if this is as far as they're willing to go with, you know, and I don't just mean extensive diagnostics, treatments, all sure. that, just in how much they're going to care for this pet. I have to try to limit that too, because if I am pouring 100% and they're pouring in 20%, that means I'm carrying the bulk of the load mentally, emotionally, if any of this is making sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I was like, to, to, if I want to do this for a long time and not burn out, um, from that compassion fatigue, I've got to find a way to draw lines in the sand. Now there are certain patients that you automatically are going to think about more, but I try to leave work at work. Now we are human. We don't just have on and off switches for things, but I do really try hard uh, to resist that control freak tendency and that worrying tendency and that aching, bleeding heart tendency and try sure. to try to keep it fenced in a little bit um, and and make it take some alone time, you know, not always Absolutely. the needs or concerns of someone else as in someone else's pet. So it's like what they say, when you go on an airplane, you got to put your own mask on before you help somebody else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Well, I absolutely, I love that idea, especially because of the emotional, just uh, 
I guess, landscape of veterinary medicine in particular, since it's such a a high-risk field just for the humans involved with their mental health as well. Anything that you can do to protect yourself from becoming so burnt out that you can't function is a hundred a hundred thousand percent necessary for sure absolutely we talked about compassion fatigue on the show as well it's it's a big big deal and it's also why there's such a huge uh movement from the uh not more not one more vet uh organization and everything like that as well yes exactly Mm -hmm. well I think you've answered like all of my questions. <laughs> so I don't know if there, if you had anything else that you wanted to touch on or anything like that, tell the listeners about. Yeah, I guess um, I just have a lot of, you know, kids or parents with kids. They're like, oh, my, my kid wants to become a vet, you know, and all the time I'm like, okay, here's the honest thing is first of all, it's not, it's not um, puppies and kitties all the time. Sometimes it is but it's not the main part of it. You're going to have tough conversations about, about dying or very sick animals or about money or Mm -hmm. or that, right. Or, or handling combative people, things like that. Right. It's not always fun. Um, but, um, on top of that, like it's a lot of science and math, right. So I'm like, okay, if you're serious about it, do good in school. Like (laughs) it sounds real good. Do do good in school. (laughs) You know, uh, you know, take that extra math class or science class, your college transcripts follow you and all of that is important. Um, and, uh, go work in a vet clinic, go see what it actually looks like. Um, go see what it's really like. Cause some of it's messy and a lot of it's not glamorous. Like when yeah. I'm like coming up in PPE to anesthetize a cat because they're obstipated, I'm basically just shoveling shit out of a cat for an hour, like, you know, like my six figure education at work, you know, it's not always fun. It's not always glamorous. Um, so I always am just telling them, like, think about that. That is now I, I don't say it to deter anyone. I love, I love that I chose to do this yeah. and I am so grateful that I do. But for anyone that, that just seems to be the most common question to me is like, you know, Oh, my kid wants to be a vet or I want to be a vet. That is the thing. It's like, it is going to be challenging And, you know, vet school, I bitched about that for a while. And that vet school was probably the hardest thing I'd ever done. Um, But um, it can be even harder sometimes in practice. So you just, you know, got to have thick skin and know that this is going to, you're going to get into something that is often challenging, but it's so rewarding too. And I've met people, both clients and colleagues and uh, some really incredible animals and heard some really great stories. And I've cried a lot, laughed a lot and been angry every now and then. Uh, <laughs> but it really is. It is one of the coolest professions uh, in the world. I mean, I don't know very many other jobs that it all in one day you can handle internal medicine cases, cuddle puppies, uh, perform a surgery, you know, it's so varied. And there are yeah. so many things you can do. It's the coolest job that I've ever had and ever will have. I found what I want to do. And so just if anyone ever wants to do it, uh, that's something to think about. And then I also say, just uh, always take a, an opportunity to be like, if you, if you have a veterinarian in your life, respect their personal time and then also be kind. And so, uh, those are really my big things that anytime I'm given a platform. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Will benefit from one of those things. (laughs) I absolutely love it. And I love to the the part about respecting your veterinarian's personal time. Too many people I feel get caught up in the, well, if you care, then you'll bend over backwards any time of day. And it's just not sustainable when you've got a roster of a couple hundred patients Mm -hmm. and every single one of them is hoping that you will have that extra rapport with them outside of business hours you wind up being a shell of who you are. <laughs> well, and, uh, it doesn't even usually end up being clients. It ends up being your friends and family. Oh, gotcha. Just constantly tapping you, you know, and I have, uh, it, my rule for myself is, is um, like, if you don't have my cell phone number, uh, you probably shouldn't be you know, uh, asking me questions. Now that's not a hard and fast rule, 
But like, if you're just a distant person from 20 years ago, we never talk, but then you're wanting to message me on how you treat your dog for parvo because you don't want to take it to the vet. Yeah. Those are the ones I have an issue with. Or I'll have friends that message me be like, hey, Stephanie with my dog. Should I take it to the ER? Or can I wait till tomorrow? Sure. I will do that. But it's the, the little outliers of people that I'm like, okay, yeah, we haven't spoken in years and years. And you're just trying to avoid having your animals seen and they desperately yeah. care. Those, that's kind of what gets you. I want my friend, like I tell my friends, hey, there's a reason you have a vet for a friend. Like that's a perk of it. Ask <laughs> me. I will tell you if I'm unavailable or can't, don't have the capacity for it at the moment. But um, it, it's, it's just one of those professions that people always think, oh, well, you love animals. So you don't mind doing this in your off time when it's like, actually everyone needs time away from work because work is yeah. still work. And so it's, you know, just one of it still takes that emotional toll, whether you're on the clock or off. So you have to be able to draw that line and, and yeah. say, not right now. <laughs> yeah, it's still work. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your amazing perspective. I'm absolutely in awe and you are so very accomplished, even for being relatively new in the veterinary <laughs> field. I love that. I love that you are just kind of grabbing life by the balls and saying, fuck the status quo. We're going to do things as we find them and we're going to be passionate about them. It's, it's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. This is a <laughs> fun experience to kind of walk down memory lane a little too. So sometimes yes. get caught up in the day to day and, and forget once upon a time, I couldn't wait to be doing this right exactly. now. Exactly. So it's really cool. So thank you. Thank you again, Dr. Hack, for coming on the show. I am just so excited to share her story and maybe even together we will inspire someone to decide it's never too late to go to vet school or pursue whatever dream career that they have been kind of hemming and hawing over. So if you guys are enjoying these episodes as much as I am, please, please, please follow us on social media. We are All for Animals Pod on Facebook, TikTok, and oh, there's another one. Oh, and YouTube. <laughs> and we are All for Animals Podcast on Instagram. And if you have a spare couple seconds or, t or so, Please give us a rating and review on whatever platform you are listening on. It really helps to bring a little bit more attention to the show and just kind of help get us out there a little bit better. Thank you everyone for listening and I'll see you next time.